Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. You know, today we're going to be discussing a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, and it it has to do with potassium. I've grown up having to deal with potassium levels and what kind of foods I have to choose and making difficult decisions. And I know if any of you listen to past interviews, I've had my heart has stopped because of a high potassium. And so this is a topic that I'm acutely aware of. And today I'm with Lance Berman, Dr. Lance Berman. He is the chief medical officer for Relipsa. And we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, new medication that's out to help people who may have a high potassium. So welcome to the show, Lance. Thank you, Laurie. It's a pleasure to speak to you. So tell us a little bit about you joined Relipsa and how they started to develop this new medication. And, you know, you can mention the name of it um, to just help patients be aware that it's an option for them. So the drug is called Veltasa, and it was just recently approved in October last year. And it's been a really interesting journey uh, in the development of this drug. It started back in probably around 2007 and 2008 when the first studies in healthy volunteers and patients began. But what we set out to do was unique. For patients like yourself, potentially, who have had to deal with the threat of high potassium levels or or hyperkalemia, you probably know that there's been nothing new to help manage this problem in over 50 years. I I know. (laughs) Right. There's one drug on the market um, that's been approved for a long time, I think since 1958, called Kegzylate, that does um, lower serum potassium, but it has problems because it, uh, first of all, doesn't taste very nice. I, I, I can attest to that. Let me tell you, it's it's gross. <laughs> it's not fun. In fact, one of the nephrologists who conducted our pivotal phase three study often tells us that when he teaches his residents in nephrology about the management of patients with chronic kidney disease, he often says to people, do not prescribe cahexalate until you've tried it yourself. Oh, that's funny. How many people actually, you know, abide by that? Because, you know, one of the other things uh, people don't often consider when prescribing, you know, KX Late is you're sick, you're probably having some kidney problems, which, you know, you are having kidney problems, which sometimes can leave you nauseous to begin with. So the idea of drinking something disgusting, and I've had my fair share of KX Late and, you know, very grateful that it was there to lower my potassium. So I'm here to tell the tale but also glad that there's an alternative. <laughs> yeah. And so the, we, we were trying to solve for, for three real problems. Um, the first is we wanted to be sure that the drug we were developing would give physicians and patients the confidence they needed to know that this drug was going to lower their potassium and mm-hmm. keep it controlled. And the reason why that was our first um, goal was because there really isn't a lot of information that's published based on research with Kegzalate to show that Kegzalate actually does that. There's not a lot of data around. So the first thing we had to do was to do the right research to show people that this drug was going to confidently lower and control potassium. The second thing we wanted to try to achieve was to design this drug in a way that it was going to be well tolerated so that people could use it over the long term to manage and control their potassiums without lots of the gastrointestinal side effects 
that people complain about when they get Kegzalate. And one of the most important gastrointestinal side effects that people complain about is very severe constipation. And the problem with Kegzalate is that it typically swells a lot when you mix it with water. And so it doesn't move through the gastrointestinal tract very easily and causes very nasty constipation. So much so that what some hospitals do is they mix it with some sorbitol, which is a, causes a diarrhea, to try to ease that constipation, but also try to improve its efficacy. And some of that diarrhea can be pretty severe. That's just lovely. I mean, you know, you have so many other issues because when you're getting a medication for, you know, a, for a high potassium, you're in for other issues, obviously, in right. the hospital. So it's or... not a fun thing to have <laughs> to be treated with in an ER setting. And uh, and the other more rarer issue with Kegzalate is that it has been known to cause colonic necrosis, which is a term used to, to describe an inflammation and some um, uh, death, if you like, of the tissue lining the colon. And when that happens, you can perforate the colon, and the complications associated with that are very, very severe and carry a very high mortality rate. About 30% of people who develop this complication on Kegzalate can actually die from it. And oh, wow. it can even happen up to one or two doses. And the reason why it happens, they believe, is because the crystals of the cahexalate drug can sometimes get caught up in the tissues lining the gut, which causes an inflammatory reaction, the necrosis of the tissue and the perforation. So we wanted to be sure that um, the drug we designed would have very different characteristics so that it would flow through the gastrointestinal tract more easily, so that it wouldn't break down into small particles that could be absorbed, and that it wouldn't um, cause inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract. That was very important. And the third thing that we were trying to solve for is the mechanism by which these drugs potentially lower potassium. And I'll briefly explain that. So essentially what these drugs do is they, they swap positive charged ions. So as you know, potassium carries a positive charge. Mm -hmm. In order for the drug to bind that potassium, it's got to give off a positive charge. And so what Kegzler does is, in order to bind the potassium, it gives off sodium. And the problem is that when you give off sodium, you essentially load the patients up with sodium. Sodium is very easily absorbed from all over the gastrointestinal tract. And where sodium follows, or salt, water follows. And the problem with that is you can get fluid retention in people who already have high blood pressure, Makes you thirsty. who may already have some heart failure, and who certainly have um, some fluid overload issues because their kidneys aren't functioning properly. Right. And so the Gagslade label actually carries a warning about this. It says don't use this drug or be careful in people who cannot tolerate a small increase of fluid overload because of the salt content. Wow. So we had to come up with a way of being able to bind the potassium and give off another positive ion that wasn't sodium. And what we chose was calcium. And I'll come back to why that's a good, a good, a good choice. So those are the three things we had to set out to achieve and why we believed it was, there was an important opportunity to do something better for patients. Well, you know, it's always interesting to me because I never knew that salt was the binding force in KXLate. And as a patient, they're trying to give you sodium to remove fluid, and then they wonder why you keep gaining fluid. So it's like this vicious cycle, and you never seem to get out of it. And it's 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 so difficult because I know for a fact um, Dr. Belding Scribber, Scribner, who was one of the founders of dialysis, was a big advocate of sodium, um, you know, understanding sodium and what it does. And if you have too much sodium, it is impossible to control your thirst. You know, you just, it's just the body's mechanism. So it's setting the patients up for failure on so many levels. They may not have a, a cardiovascular event because of potassium, but they can have one as a result of 
fluid overload. Absolutely. So, so it's, um, it, you know, you have to always, when you take a drug, and I know this from personal experience, you have to always, you know, weigh the risks and benefits of anything because it's it's life threatening. But, um, you know, very interesting for you to tell me about that. So how often do people take the medication? Like I know KX Late is on an emergency situation or, you know, you're trying to get you to surgery and lower your potassium or who knows what, what the issue may be. But it's is this medication for emergency uses or more of to keep um, the potassium normal? So this drug is taken once a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's pretty simple. You it comes in a, in a little packet. It comes in a powder format. You mix the powder in a small amount of water uh, in a glass, and you mix it up, and it forms a little suspension. It doesn't really have a taste, and you drink it and take it once a day. So it, it has it's really convenient. It doesn't require um, a loading dose of three times a day, for example, before it starts to work. You can use this once a day um, from the get-go. And the nice thing about how we developed the trials, we wanted to show the FDA, but also importantly, we wanted to show physicians that this drug can be used both in the long term as well as in the short term. And so there's two different types of scenarios. The first is in the long term, particularly in cases like yourself, for example, where someone has poor underlying kidney function or even has um, been on dialysis or transplant, maybe less so from a transplant if the kidneys are working well. Um, the underlying problem that causes potassium to rise isn't necessarily going away and it might even be getting worse. And so the need to be able to consistently control and maintain control of potassium over the long term becomes a distinct advantage. And so the clinical trials that we did demonstrated this and we published them in some of the world's top journals and showed that you could, even up to a year, we could um, keep potassium controlled very nicely when, when it's used each day. And so it's perfectly designed to work in um, an outpatient or setting where patients can dose at home over the long term. The other potential way this could be used is in a hospital setting. And we should talk a bit about this because there are a couple of options that patients can have, and it sounds like you may have experienced some of these in the past. When a patient has um, a very, very high serum potassium level, obviously the major, major issue you're trying to deal with other than the muscle weakness and so on is the potential to have a fatal arrhythmia. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when a patient gets to an emergency room with a very, very high level of potassium is the doctor has to do something that's going to work in minutes. And there are two things that they can do. The first thing is they can put um, an intravenous infusion of something called calcium gluconate. The calcium in the, in, the, in the infusion helps to stabilize the heart muscles from having an arrhythmia. Mm-hmm. The second thing that the physician will do is they will also then um, provide intravenous insulin. And the reason they'll provide intravenous insulin is insulin will temporarily shift the high levels of potassium in the blood into the cells tricking the body into believing that the level of potassium has gone down when in actual fact it hasn't, it's just been put somewhere else. And they'll usually give that insulin with some glucose so the patient doesn't drop their blood sugar. There are some other things that they can use like um, inhaled beta agonists, which are often used in asthma patients to improve airway function because sometimes these agents can also help shift potassium into the cells. But those two intravenous options are the mainstay because they work within minutes. Now, no oral medication is going to work that fast, right? right. No oral medication is going, to, is going to do something that quickly. So an oral medication like Pterima is never going to be appropriate in the acute life-threatening emergency situation. You're always going to need your intravenous options first. But certainly what Pterima could do or what Valtasa could do 
is could be used together with those intravenous options. So that if you had been in the ER when Beltasa was available, what the physician might have done for you is start you on the intravenous options to get that potassium um, out of the blood within a couple of minutes and prevent you from having a fatal arrhythmia, and then start you on the oral Veltasa so that within a couple of hours your potassium starts to normalize, and then that way the physician can be comfortable that they can send you home knowing that Veltasa will keep your potassium down until you can go and be seen by your nephrologist. So that how, that's how the drug that's, could be used in both the acute and the chronic setting. Well, I remember it was back in 1979 when, you know, I had a, a cardiac arrest due to high potassium. And they really didn't know a lot back then about the warning signs. But I just remember, like, sitting on the couch and wanting to lay flat on the floor. I felt so heavy. Like, all I wanted to do was lay down, like, this incredible weight. And, you know, it's because all my muscles were starting to paralyze, basically. And I like to share that with patients because, you know, they could actually be experiencing this and save their own lives if they, you know, have some kind of feeling like, oh, I kind of feel like I have a a truck just hit me and um, it could be potassium. (laughs) Uh, One of my questions is, is though, when you take the medication, can you take too much of it? Like, can it lower it? Is because there's a risk of low um, hypokalemia or lower potassium to say like a patient. That's a good question. Um, And... Um, low potassium levels can be just as dangerous as right. high potassium levels from the arrhythmia perspective. And the answer to your question is there's always a risk that if you take too much of the drug, you could cause hypokalemia. Yes, overdosage or on, on any drug is always something that patients and, and their treating doctors need to be careful of. But what's very interesting when we looked at this in our clinical trials is the risk of developing very low serum potassiums. In other words, the drug working too well is very, very, very low. Um, and that's really comforting because it means that the risk of over-treating and causing too much of an effect or increasing the risk of, ar- of an arrhythmia is very low. And there's a physiological reason why that's, why that's happening. Um, in our bodies, about 98% of our potassium lives inside our various cells, muscle cells and fat cells and so on. Very little bit, only 2% actually circulates around in the bloodstream. If, for some reason, the blood levels start to go too low, the body can shift that potassium out of the cells into the bloodstream to try to compensate. And so there's almost like a built-in protection mechanism. Mm -hmm. But obviously, having said that, um, if a patient takes too much of the drug, they have to be careful and obviously make sure that their physicians know if they're going to make any dose adjustments. Well, and one of the things, too, that, you know, I think is important, and I know you're aware of this, but uh, if you're not on, if you're on dialysis, obviously, you have such a restricted diet. So, um, and especially with potassium, I mean, I used to dream about a baked potato and, you know, having guacamole without feeling like I need an emergency visit. Um, is this something that, you know, you see as doctors just being able to prescribe to patients to just eat a normal diet? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I know for me, too, as somebody on dialysis, if you want to get a transplant, if you need to have any weight loss, um, it's very difficult on the renal diet because you can't have too many fruits and vegetables. So there's so many, you know, hopeful moments here for people who have kidney failure to be able to just go to a party and not stress out. You know, it's so interesting. I read your um, previous article um, about how you dialyzed potatoes. I thought that was so interesting and so ingenious. <laughs> but um, 
You know, I think the, the question you raise is a big one we get from physicians who, who particularly look after patients on dialysis because exactly as you've said, patients on dialysis are trying to restrict so many of their various fluids, salt restrictions and so on, um, that there's not a lot left that they can eat. And what some patients do is they are told they've got to stay away from salt and so they use salt substitutes, which contain and potassium. potassium. And so, um, and then they're told to st- stay away from high potassium foods. And guess what? That's all the healthy stuff, right? That's right. all the vegetables, the leafy salad vegetables, um, some, some good dairy products. And so it's, it's, you're not left with a lot of, a lot of healthy foods that patients can eat. And so malnutrition in dialysis patients becomes a really, really challenging issue. So we do get this. And I think there is a lot of hope here. But let's talk a bit about a bit about it in, in, in more detail because it's a little complicated, right? Um, Baltasa works by removing the excess potassium from the body. So if you take an excess potassium through the diet and if you are being treated with Baltasa, then that excess potassium should then be removed. So I think there's hope. But it's also important to remember that some of that excess potassium from the diet may still be absorbed into the bloodstream before Baltasa has a chance to remove it. And so patients should always talk to their doctors first about altering their diets before they do so. Mm -hmm. Because if you, you know, it's holiday time and there's some fantastic desserts or it's springtime and there's watermelon or it's tomato season, we need to be a little careful about eating all of that stuff without being careful because you may get a sudden spike in potassium and um, Veltessa may not have a chance to remove all of that in time. So one should always be sure that one talks to one's dietitian or physician before making adjustments to one's diet. Uh, um, I think that this is, a, again, um, a big issue in patients with, um, with, uh, with, with, with dialysis because, again, the malnutrition issue is is really important. I th- I like to think of it in a similar way. If you if you think of patients with diabetes who are told to watch their blood sugar even though they're taking insulin, mm-hmm. or hypertension patients who are told to watch their salt intake even though they're taking blood pressure medications, it's a similar story here. You will always need to just be careful about what you eat from a potassium perspective. If even if you're taking potassium lowering medications. But I do think that there's hope here for patients to be able to ease up slightly and potentially have diets that could be more healthy for them in the long term. Well, one of the things you mentioned, too, that it binds with calcium. And I'm, you know, I come from the days when they were binding um, phosphorus with aluminum-based binders. And then in the early 90s, they switched to calcium-based binders. And I got transplanted, kind of missed that whole era before, you know, missed that window before I had to go back on dialysis. And there was a lot of knowledge about patients, a lot of my friends getting calciphylaxis and calcium overload from these phosphate binders that were made from calcium. Is there any risk of that? I mean, just I'm just being, you know, I guess in a long-term effect that you could be get too much calcium from the, the medication. Yeah, that's a good question. And we've looked at that very, very, very carefully in, in our clinical trials for all the reasons that you say. Um, it's interesting because the ability to, to provide phosphate binders to patients with dialysis has been an interesting journey over the years, starting with the calcium-based options mm-hmm. and then um, changing to the metal-based options, aluminum, and the problem with aluminum um, is that it was horribly toxic to both the kidneys and the brain, um, and so metal-based binders have become somewhat, um, they have some baggage associated mm-hmm. with them from a safety perspective. And so, again, us not being a metal-based 
binder of Altas's a polymer, there's the potential again then to have um, better outcomes. But um, from a calcium perspective, we looked at this very, very carefully in our phase one study. So the phase one studies are those studies that you do very early on in a drug development life cycle, typically done in healthy people, just to get a, an initial effect on the safety and efficacy of the drug before you put it into much larger patient numbers. So in those early trials, what we did is we carefully controlled what the patients were eating with regard to their potassium and their calcium. And we were then able to measure everything the patients excreted in the urine and feces, and we measured the blood levels to see whether there was any change in calcium levels. Because we wanted to be sure that if we were exchanging calcium and giving off calcium, that we weren't going to be loading up the patients with calcium. These data have been submitted to a, to a journal right now, and we're hoping to get these, this published in a, in a few weeks. But what we learned was that the amount of calcium that's absorbed from our drug is very small. It's about 50 to 70 milligrams per day, which is very low. It's less than a glass of milk. Um, and the reason physiologically why it's so low is because most of the exchange for potassium, that binding, takes place in the colon where there is a high concentration of potassium available. And if that's where most of the exchange is taking place, some of the exchange takes place higher up, but most in the colon, then um, the ability for calcium to be absorbed, having come off the drug, is very low because calcium is not readily absorbed in the colon. Less than 10% is absorbed. And so the risk of then loading up the patient with calcium is very low, and that's what we see in the clinical data. But there's something else that's emerging now with this drug that's beginning to be very exciting, and we're just starting to learn more about this. And again, we also submitted this to a journal for publication. And this is that when the calcium comes off the drug in the colon, it also starts to bind up some free phosphate, which gets excreted as calcium phosphate. Mm -hmm. And the benefit of that, and we've seen some of this in our early dialysis study, is that we actually see some phosphate reduction mm -hmm. in the bloodstream, which could also be beneficial in dialysis patients. And so there's all sorts of exciting ways this drug could potentially be benefiting patients that we have to learn more about. Maybe you don't have to take another phosphate pill. That's what I well, that's what I hear when you say that. Oh, look, I don't have to take another pill. Um, yeah. So obviously, you know, before we could ever make those sort of statements, yes, we I, would need to do the right sort of research to fully understand it. Yes, I, I, you know, it's so interesting because I've been, you know, I've seen the evolution of the kidney field since 1968. So, you know, anything's possible. And, you know, people with kidney disease in all families are so grateful for people who innovate and create new things. You know, I have one question, though. I was thinking, you know, we talked a lot about dialysis patients. Um, I'm thinking about people who are in, don't need dialysis or have a transplant and they may require blood pressure medicine. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the blood pressure medicines that may not be available because of the risk of high potassium and that may be limited as a result of having another option? It's amazing how, how much you know about this disease area, given that you've experienced it and how much reading you've done. It's just terrific that you um, <laughs> I know, are I, championing this. It's, it's just terrific. I have an honorary PhD from the School you of Hard Knocks. You certainly do. Um, it's just, I just think it's terrific because it makes the work that we do so much more meaningful. Um, so, Laurie, the, um, the issue here that you're pointing to is the treatment of patients who have renal failure before they get to dialysis. And there's lots of those people in the U.S. We think there's about three and a half million people in the U.S. who have 
They're like stage three, stage four. Yeah, stage three, stage four, and blood pressure is going to cause their kidney failure eventually if they don't manage it. So there are so many incredible blood pressure medicines that are able to control. And I mean, one time, you know, I couldn't take one because, you know, my ankles would swell. You have to keep one made me cough, you know, all these different things. So sometimes you have to find the right blood pressure medicine that doesn't have side effects that makes you want to take it. (laughs) And that that medication may in turn raise your potassium level, which that then makes it not available to you. So, I, I mean, it gives you hope because it gives you more options. And that's what patients need. You know, they need choice and options. And, you know, so I just wanted to kind of bring that up so people who are listening are aware of it. Well, let's talk about those options because you've, you've raised um, a central theme in the management of high potassium levels. And that has to do with a group of blood pressure medications called the RAS inhibitors. Um, RAS is, a, is an acronym, and it stands, stands for Renal Angiotensin Aldosterone System Inhibitors, which is basically a long way of describing how a certain group of blood pressure medications lower blood pressure. They do it through the renin angiotensin system in our bodies. And there are three classes of medications within this group, the ACE inhibitors, the ARBs or angiotensin receptor blockers, and the mineralocorticoid antagonists. These three drugs have, are fantastic drugs to lower blood pressure. They've been around for a long time. They're generic and they're cheap and they work. But what's also been found with these drugs is that they actually slow the progression of kidney disease and improve survival. So these drugs have fantastic benefits in patients with both chronic kidney disease but also patients with heart failure because they improve survival in heart failure patients and they prevent or slow the the readmission rates for worsening heart failure. So these drugs have phenomenal benefits beyond blood pressure. The problem with these drugs is that they raise potassium. And so what most physicians do, in fact, the kidney Kedoki guideline, guideline number 11, actually recommends that if a patient on these medications develops high potassium, these medications have to be reduced, the dose has to be reduced, and if that's not sufficient to control the rising potassium, they have to be stopped. And so what physicians are struggling with is how do I get the benefits of these drugs for these patients without necessarily causing hyperkalemia? And if they become hyperkalemic, then I've got to pull back on these medications and these patients don't get these benefits. So it's a real, it's a real conundrum for, for most physicians. The potential to now be able to control potassium so that patients can stay on these medications or get back on these medications really opens up a whole new set of possibilities for these patients who couldn't get these medications in the past. And in our clinical trials, um, while we didn't uh, look at the benefit long-term of whether or not staying on these medications is beneficial, because those usually take long, long, long studies, what we did pre-specify in our trials is as a result of controlling potassium, how many people could actually stay on these medications versus those who were on placebo and couldn't control potassium and had to come off. And we learned that many more patients were able to stay on these medications. And so the question is now, can we offer these patients more hope to be able to go on these medications and potentially improve their outcomes over the long term? That to to me is going to be the next frontier. Well, and I, I think it's just amazing because throughout my life, all I've ever tried to do is just stay alive till the next miracle happens. 
you know, I've had four transplants. I was on dialysis for 13 years, and I've had over 50 surgeries. And it's just so hopeful. And, you know, I tell patients that all the time is that there's so many people working behind the scenes to improve our lives. And sometimes we just walk in the doctor's office or we just see a very, very tiny piece of the puzzle. And, you know, the more we can become educated and be, you know, you know, sign up for a clinical trial if it, if it makes sense for you. You know, we all need to be somewhat guinea pigs to help the future as well. And, you know, for this particular uh, potassium binding medication, it just seems like patients are going to benefit so much. Like they'll, they'll see it immediately. You know, sometimes we take a medication and we just, you know, we did, if, if we knew we were going to live this long, we would have taken better care of ourselves. I mean, that's the common message with um, phosphate binders because <laughs> you don't see the immediate, you know, result of it. So, um, you know, in, in wrapping it up, well, so how do patients, you know, do they go to their doctor? You know, how do they learn more about uh, potassium, this potential medication, and, you know, learn their options? So the, the first place I would suggest is we there's a website, which is always a good place for people to read up. Um, it's veltasa.com. Um, it has information about the disease and the drug so that um, patients can, can understand what it's about. And then I would really encourage patients to take that information and ask their physicians about whether or not this drug may be helpful, may, may be suitable, can they use it um, in their, in their, with, with their other medications. Um, and there are many, many um, websites that we have in place that help physicians understand the disease and how to use the drug as well. But, you know, you touched on something about, which I want to just um, talk about, which is about the commitment that companies like us, like Relipsa, make towards developing drugs. It's not just about the drug that we're developing. It's also about doing something that can actually have a benefit for patients because it's one thing to spend billions of dollars and a lot of time developing re and researching new drugs. But if they're not going to help patients and if insurance companies won't pay for them, there's no point in embarking on that expense and time. So our commitment to the patients goes beyond just developing a drug that the FDA is going to approve. We have to make sure that the patients can get the drug. And so what we try to do, what we have done at Relipsa is set up a system called Veltasa Connect. Basically what happens is if the physician decides to prescribe the drug to the patient, that uh, prescription goes to Veltasa Connect, and it's essentially a patient support service. And it has three real benefits. The first is it'll make sure that the drug is affordable for the patient. Um, and this is important because different plans have different coverage levels and different costs to different patients. And we want to make sure that patients don't pay more than $25 copay. So we try to make sure that this is affordable, given that these patients are offered on many different medications. So we have, when the script comes in, we have the support service that will help the patient make sure that they can afford the product. We provide um, reimbursement support. And for Medicare patients, we provide, we've donate, donated money to an independent fund that helps uh, provide financial support to, to patients for, who are on Medicare. The second thing that the service does is it makes sure that the drug gets to the patient. So we'll ship the, pa the drug direct to the patient's house so that the patient doesn't have to go to and from a retail pharmacy waiting until the drug is either in stock or waiting for the insurance to approve the, the request. The drug will be sent to the patient's house. But the biggest advantage, I think, of this support service is that while the insurance 
company is making a decision as to whether to cover the patient's drug, we will ship drug free of charge to the patient while that patient's insurance decision is being made. And I want to just spend a bit of time talking about this because what we are seeing over the last year and a half or two years is um, when new drugs are launched, insurance companies are taking longer to decide whether or not those drugs should be reimbursed or provided on their formularies. And so the potential is that while those um, review periods are taking place, the drug may not be available or may be very, very expensive for the patient. And so the patient may decide not to get the drug or they may just not get access to it. We don't want that to happen given the seriousness of hyperkalemia with Veltasa. So what we do is the patient support service will work with the insurance companies behind the scenes to make sure the patient gets the coverage and the reimbursement so the doctor doesn't have to worry about it, the nurse doesn't have to worry about it, and the patient doesn't have to worry about it. We'll take that on. And while that insurance coverage assessment is taking place, and it can take some time, sometimes two or three weeks, we will ship the patient free drug to make sure the patient can get the treatment that they need. And I think that those three benefits are really important because our responsibility, as I say, goes way beyond just researching a drug. We've got to make sure that the patients can actually use it. I see this um, uh, conference room with all these different you know, health insurance people making decisions <laughs> about a medication, and they're probably forgetting that it eventually will probably save a lot of money to prevent a potential emergency room visit, which is really expensive. Or secondly, it could... Um, you know, allow the patient to have medications that would manage them so that they wouldn't become more ill. So um, I wonder if they get that perspective, because I, I imagine this conference room is saying, do we really want to put this on our formulary? It's, you know, it, it makes it difficult. I've dealt with a lot of different medications and had to work with insurance companies independently to get a medication that I needed in my lifetime. So it's great that you have the support because they need it. <laughs> Patients need it. It's very difficult. Well, well, thank you, Dr. Berman. This has been so informative. I mean, it's um, it's hopeful to me. I know it's going to be hopeful to our listeners. And um, keep up the great work. I mean, I can't wait to see, you know, five, ten years how, you know, uh, potassium isn't as big an issue for patients as it is today. And that would be a wonderful accomplishment. Well, I, I thank you for that. And, uh, Laurie, I, what I would like to say to you and to patients like you, we are right behind you every step of the way. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.